0: Hello, and welcome to Walt Disney by Neil Gabler, Chapter 42. Besieged and Miserable. Walt Disney knew who was responsible for his studio's declining fortunes, knew that these people were hoping it was the end for him, as he later put it, and two months after he returned from Alaska, he headed to Washington to help vanquish them. The enemy wasn't just the economics of animations or the bankers with their constraints or changing aesthetics or a new post-war mood that Walt couldn't quite tap the way he had tapped the mood of the Depression. The enemy was communism. Communism that had racked the studio during the strike. Communism that had sneaked into Hollywood like a Trojan horse to promote values deleterious to democracy. Communism that was even now undermining the nation as it had undermined the motion picture industry. Walt Disney was going to fight communism. This was a rather unusual mission for him. Despite their father's radicalism, Elias and apparently Flora as well had voted for the socialist presidential candidates... Eugene V. Debs and then Norman Thomas, neither Walt nor Roy had ever shown much interest in politics. Politics was the outside world, the world that Walt had built his studio to protect himself from, and anyone hunting for a consistent political subtext to the cartoons would have been baffled by the oscillation between the impertinent Mickey Mouse cartoons of the early 1930s and the silly symphonies like the grasshopper and the ants, the tortoise and the hare, and the country cousin that promoted traditional values like hard work, thrift, and discipline. The oscillation reflected the Disney's lack of political conviction. When writer Upton Sinclair won the Democratic gubernatorial primary in California in 1934 on a platform promising to end poverty with government programs and then was defeated in the general election by an influx of Hollywood money, Roy chided his parents for supporting Sinclair but admitted many of the things he advocated are going to come around in some form or other. However, I don't believe you can upset society overnight. And he closed his letter. I can hear dad saying, now since the boys have joined the capitalist class and the employers class, they sing a different tune. Well, of course it's true. Walt would claim that he came to his political conservatism by another route. He told Maurice Rapp that when he was a boy in Kansas City, he had been attacked by a gang of Irish kids whose fathers worked for the democratic political machine and who put hot tar on his scrotum because Elias was a socialist. Rapf never believed the story, and Walt's old benefactor, Dr. John Cowles, had been a large cog in the Democratic machine, but Walt insisted the episode had turned him into a dyed-in-the-wool Republican. More likely, Walt's politics were the result of his rebelliousness against Elias, but the fact was that Walt hadn't really been a conservative or a republic, a Republican or much of anything else for the better part of his adult life. Rather, his politics had been marked by either confusion or neutrality. He had voted for Roosevelt in 1936, even as Roy had voted for Republican Alf Landon, and though he said he supported Republican presidential candidate Wendell Willkie in 1940, wilkie had visited the studio and discussed education with walt he declined a request from the wilkie campaign for an endorsement writing a long time ago i found out that i knew nothing whatsoever about this game of politics and since then i've preferred to keep silent about the entire matter rather than see my name attached to any statement that was not my own As for his conservatism, he told another correspondent who was lobbying him to make a reel of flags with patriotic music that I don't go in for billboard patriotism. He was very apolitical, believe me, said Joe Grant, who accompanied Walt on several wartime visits to Washington. Disney's detractors, after the fact, would say that he had been an admirer of German Chancellor Adolf Hitler and Italian dictator Benito Mussolini, and Art Babbitt in later years claimed to have actually seen Walt and Gunther Lessing at bond meetings of Nazi sympathizers that Babbitt himself had attended out of curiosity. That was highly unlikely, not only because Walt had little enough time for his family, much less political meetings, but because he had no real political leanings at the time. Others would find evidence of pro-Nazi sentiment in Walt's invitation to German filmmaker Leni Leni Riefenstahl who had directed the Nazi propaganda film Triumph of the Will to tour the studio. Reifenstahl did visit the studio on December 8, 1938, through an invitation solicited from Walt by a close friend of Reifenstahl's and an acquaintance of Walt's, Jay Stowitz, who had been a ballet dancer with Anna Pavlova, a star of the Follies Berger, a painter and an actor. Stowitz wrote Walt that Riefenstahl had slipped into California quietly and had asked to meet him because she considered him the greatest personage in American films. As Riefenstahl later described the meeting, she spent the entire day with Walt at the studio. Walt's desk diary shows a sweatbox session for the Claire de Lune sequence of Fantasia at 2 o'clock, then offered to have a print of her film Olympia messengered over when Walt expressed interest in seeing it. But Walt, she said, suddenly hesitated, saying, If I see your film, then all of Hollywood will find out by tomorrow, since his projectionists were unionized. He feared that he might be boycotted. Three months later, Riefenstahl wrote, Walt disavowed her trip, claiming that he hadn't known who she was when he issued the invitation. Of course... Walt had known who Riefenstahl was. To Stowitz's original letter, someone, presumably a studio publicist, had attached an ad from Variety placed by the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League, declaring that Riefenstahl was in Hollywood and calling for the industry to ostracize her. Still, Walt, who was something of a political naive, may not have known exactly what she represented, and he certainly would not have wanted to get embroiled in any political controversy at the time. As Europe churned in the mid-1930s, Walt had expressly told one reporter that America should let them fight their own wars, and that he had learned my lesson from the last one— once the war started, even after the 1941 strike, left-wing groups frequently asked for his contributions and support, and everything from helping to underwrite a series of lectures by Owen Lattimore, a left-leaning China expert who would later be condemned by communist-hunting Senator Joseph McCarthy, to serving as a patron for the Congress of American-Soviet Friendship, all of which suggested that Walt was not perceived as a hopeless reactionary. Walt sometimes agreed sending his heartfelt greetings to the gallant people of the Soviet Union on that country's 25th anniversary, appearing as a guest of honor at a Night of the Americas, sponsored by a group designated by the Attorney General as subversive, and signing an ad in The Daily Worker, along with Paul Robison, Langston Hughes, Communist leader Earl Browder, and others for a tribute to the memory of Art Young, a left-wing cartoonist. Though Walt would have al- though walt would have a long association a long association with the fbi helping promote the bureau his own files cited the night of the americas and the young tribute as casting as casting doubt on his patriotism At the same time, however, having been shaken by the strike, he was louding Reader's Digest for an anti-Soviet article by Max Eastman that Walt thought would counteract pro-Soviet Hollywood propaganda, like the film Mission to Moscow, and he had joined staunch conservatives like actors Ginger Rogers, Robert Montgomery, and George Murphy in forming a Hollywood Republican committee to counteract the more liberal progressive citizens of America. The biggest assault on the Hollywood left wing, however, was yet to come. In early October 1943, the University of California at Los Angeles, under the auspices of the League of American Writers, hosted a conference of writers from South America. Walt was among the attendees at the opening session, along with Theodore Dreiser and Thomas Mann. Either during or shortly after the conference, James Kevin McGinnis, a reactionary screenwriter who had led attempts to undermine the Screenwriters Guild in the mid-1930s, hosted a dinner with like-minded friends where he and his guests stewed over the conference, which they evidently regarded as another sign of communist perfidy, and decided to form an investigating group to combat what they saw as communist influence in the film industry. Sometime in late October or early November, 30 members of the industry met at Chasen's Restaurant, a Hollywood hangout to formalize the group, and again at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel on November 29th and December 9th to draw up an organization plan. Among the names floated for possible membership at the December meeting was Walt Disney. Though Walt had never been a joiner, after the strike it probably didn't take much convincing to get him to participate. He called on Rupert Hughes, another notoriously reactionary screenwriter on the way home from the studio on January 31st apparently to discuss the political situation and on February 4th he attended a dinner at Hughes's home for an organization that was listed in his desk diary as the Pro-American Committee of Hollywood but that had actually been named the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals the group that had been born at James McGuinness's dinner party later that night at a meeting at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel at Attended by some 200 members of the film community, director Sam Wood was elected president of the new organization and set designer Cedric Gibbons, writer-director Norman... Taurag and Disney were elected vice presidents. In a Declaration of Principles, the MPA proclaimed, we find ourselves in sharp revolt against a rising tide of communism, fascism, and kindred beliefs, and vowed to do battle against anyone who tried to divert the loyalty of the screen from the free America that gave it birth, though it was really communism, not any of the other beliefs that exercised them, including Walt Disney." The next month, the MPA escalated the battle. It wrote a letter to Senator Robert Reynolds of North Carolina, accusing the film industry of harboring communists and using as proof the fact that people like Walt Disney had felt the need to form an organization to combat the threat. Reynolds placed the letter in the Congressional record, though the real purpose of the MPA was not to get Congress's attention so much as to spur Congress to investigate. There had even been rumors that Representative Martin Dyes, the chairman of the House Committee on Un-American Activities, was retiring so that he could become the head of the MPA. Up to this point, there had been a good deal of intramural squabbling between the right and the left in Hollywood. But with the Reynolds letter, the MPA and Walt Disney had crossed a had crossed a line they weren't simply attacking communists, they were attacking their own industry. The left, which had so often ridiculed Hollywood in the past, even as it was taking its money, ironically leaped to the industry's defense. The Screenwriters Guild called a meeting at the Roosevelt Hotel on May 2nd at which 38 unions passed a resolution reaffirming confidence in the achievements of the motion picture industry and promising to protect it against irresponsible and unwarranted attacks. The FBI, which was monitoring the entire situation at the invitation of the NPA, called the movement communist-inspired. Others accused the MPA of proto-fascism. The public pronouncements of the more active members of the MPA are modeled strictly along orthodox red-baiting and witch-hunting lines, wrote screenwriter and playwright Elmer Rice, and one need not look far below the surface to discover that the organization and its leading spirits are deeply tinged with isolationism and anti-unionism and off the record, of course, with strong overtones of of anti-Semitism and Jim Crowism. Meanwhile, an informant had told the FBI that the executive secretary of the Los Angeles Communist Party had been discussing ways of sullying the MPA, but the secretary had exempted Walt Disney from the criticism because Disney had done such fine work for South America. But if the Communist Party was sparing Walt Disney, his friend, producer Walter Wanger, was not. Wanger and Walt engaged in some frank talks about the MPA, and Wanger sent Walt a scathing letter that he had written to one of the MPA's officials in which he blasted the group for attracting irresponsible people and permitting them to speak for it and for picturing the leaders of the industry as at best inept and as at worst fools. And Wanger was worried about Walt, about where he was headed. Walt had sent him an article by the red baiting columnist George, so- George Sokolsky, lacerating Vice President Henry Wallace. Um for whom Walt had once attended a dinner, and urged Wanger to read it. Wanger wrote back regretfully, "'The minute you become a producer of the Sikulski theme in your films, "'I'm afraid you will never make a Snow White, a Dumbo, a Saludos Amigos, a Bambi, or a Pinocchio. "'These pictures are full of faith, decency, ideals, and charm. "'And he closed, you had better look in the mirror and not be impressed by rabble-rousers.' But he had been impressed by the rabble-rousers, and he hadn't made another Snow White, Pinocchio, or Bambi though he publicly professed to be nonpartisan. As an independent voter, I owe allegiance to no political party, he told a national radio audience before endorsing 1944 Republican presidential nominee, New York Governor Thomas Dewey. He donated heavily to the Republican Party, allowed a Dewey rally on the studio grounds, delivered a speech for Dewey at the Los Angeles Coliseum, and was selected as one of California's electors should Dewey win, even if he was stirred less by enthusiasm for Dewey, who was a comparative moderate, than by by antipathy to the Roosevelt administration. To a Republican fundraiser, he wrote, I'm sorry, I can only give money. Yet by 1947, he could give more, and he did. The invitation that the MPA had tendered to Congress back in 1944 had finally been accepted. With Congress coming under Republican control after the 1946 midterm elections, the House Un-American Activities Committee, HUAC, announced that it was going to investigate Hollywood, and in September 1947, it issued subpoenas to 19 so-called unfriendly witnesses. The term was actually the Hollywood Reporters and 26 friendlies, quote-unquote. There's a note there. There is a discrepancy between the names of those subpoenaed, as listed in The Hollywood Reporter, and those who later testified. 24 so-called friendlies finally testified. Among those quote-unquote friendlies was Walt Disney, the quintessentially American face of Hollywood. Walt wasn't a passive recipient. He was firmly entrenched now with the professional red-baiters on the Hollywood right, McGinnis, Hughes, Wood, and actors like Adolf Minjau, Ward Bond, and Robert Taylor. Throughout the year, he continued to attend MPA meetings and meet with fellow conservatives like George Murphy and with the staff of HUAC. He even had Gunther Lessing submit questions to the committee that he thought he should be asked. Then, On October 18th, he left for New York for a brief stay to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Mickey Mouse at a dinner before heading to Washington for the hearings. The juxtaposition of the celebration with the testimony showed what a long 20 years it had been. He had gone from iconoclast to guardian of the social order. He arrived at the less-than-packed House Caucus Room on Capitol Hill on the afternoon of October twenty-fourth, 1947, in a sober gray flannel suit, albeit with a loud tie, his ordinarily wild hair plastered to his head, the first witness of that session on the second day of the hearings. Actors Gary Cooper and Ronald Reagan, among others, had testified the first day when the caucus room had been jammed. After preliminary inquiries about Walt's background in the film industry and his producing propaganda during the war, committee co-counsel H.A. Smith asked the big question, were there any communists or fascists at his studio? "'No,' Walt asserted in his soft, flat, nasally Midwestern voice. "'I feel that everybody in my studio is 100% American. "'But had there been communists at the studio in the past?' "'Yes,' Walt answered, and proceeded to tell the story "'of how Union Chief Herbert Sorrell strong-armed the studio into the strike, "'even though,' he said, "'his employees whom Sorrell claimed to be representing "'actually protested against Sorrell's union.' When Walt said that he wouldn't recognize the Union, Sorrell, who, Walt told the committee he believed was a communist, sneered that he would smear Walt, and Sorrell had been true to his word. Walt couldn't remember all the groups that smeared and boycotted him. One that is clear in my mind is the League of Women Voters, but he did cite People's World, The Daily Worker, and PM as three publications that he knew had flayed him. He couldn't remember the communist employees who had incited his studio either, only the union agitator David Hilberman. And as for whether the Communist Party deserved to be outlawed, Walt called the party an un-American thing, though he said he wasn't qualified to determine whether it would violate rights to banish it. Chairman J. Parnell Thomas praised his films and his testimony, and Walt Disney's day was done. Walt had played his part the part of the aggrieved hero of the common man, the Horatio Alger industrialist, who had been besieged by left-wing ideologues, and H.A. Smith called his testimony as effective as that of any witness, save for one problem. Inciting communist organizations that had attacked him in the wake of the strike, Walt had indicated the nonpartisan civic group the League of Women Voters. The League, astonished, immediately ordered an investigation to determine if any of its members in the California chapter had taken part in the Disney labor dispute, and an officer wrote Walt asking for the names of the women involved. Walt answered the request with a tepid retraction to the committee, saying that in 1941, several women supporting the strikers represented themselves as being from the League of Women Voters, but averred that he was not criticizing the current League. Meanwhile, Gunther Lessing was frantically conducting his own investigation and discovered four letters in his file, at least one of which Walt had seen from the Hollywood League of Women Shoppers supporting the strikers, though Lessing also wrote Walt that he thought the local chapter of the League of Women Voters appears to have followed the party line about the time of the Disney strike, which was patent. A few weeks later, Lessing conceded and wrote the league to apologize for Walt's mistake, suggesting that Walt would recommend your organization whenever the opportunity presents itself. But with his appearance and his careless denunciation, Walt Disney had gotten himself ensnared in the politics of red-baiting. Shortly after his testimony, he was invited to an American Legion rally at which the Legion's commander, James F. O'Neill, who had been spearheading a drive for an in- for an industry blacklist of communists and communist supporters, would be in attendance. Walt begged off, saying he would be at Smoke Tree at the time for a much-needed rest, but he added I would have no hesitancy in joining your group and said I am sure the Hollywood people who were in Washington will all be glad to attend. When a number of studio heads met in November at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York to discuss instituting their own blacklist, Walt sent his New York publicity chief, William Levy, who approved the plan for the studio. Blacklisting me would have been embarrassing for him, Maurice Rapp observed, blaming Roy and Lessing for stoking Walt's anti-communism. He wouldn't have liked to fire me, but he would have fired me, of course, Raph, sa- Raph said, had Raph not already left the studio. Rapf was right. Walt did enforce a blacklist, and he didn't do so reluctantly. He was among the first subscribers to alert, which billed itself as the weekly report on communism in California, and he routinely cooperated with the FBI, even funneling names of prospective employees to the Bureau for clearance. Of course, by this time, it was no secret that Walt Disney was a fervent anti-communist. Another question, one that would haunt him for the rest of his life and even haunt his reputation decades after he died, was whether he was also an anti-Semite. As with race, one could certainly point to some casual insensitivity. Shortly after the release of the Three Little Pigs in 1933, Rabbi J. X. Cohen, the director of the American Jewish Congress, wrote Walt angrily that a scene in which the wolf was portrayed as a a Jewish peddler was so vile, revolting, and unnecessary as to constitute a direct affront to the Jews, especially in light of what was then happening in Germany, and he asked that the offending scene be removed roy speaking for walt responded that he felt the scene was neither vile nor revolting that the studio had jewish friends and business associates whom it would not dare to demean and that the characterization was no different from that of jewish comedians in vaudeville or on the screen years later when pigs was re-released the scene was reanimated Whether it came from this kind of insensitivity or from the fact that the Disney studio was one of the few in Hollywood at the time that was not run by Jews, a perception apparently arose that the company was anti-Semitic. Kay Kamen, the head of the company's merchandising arm and himself a Jew, seemed to acknowledge this when he sent Roy a clipping of a photo of Walt and Lillian from a Hebrew newspaper with a note, This proves that we are not prejudiced. How any of this translated into Walton Roy's personal feelings about Jews is difficult to determine. In 1933, Roy had called one business agent with whom he was dealing a cheap kike, and A.V. Cowger's son said his father told him that Walt had groused about Jews when he returned from New York after his fateful showdown with Charlie Mintz in 1928, though this may very well have been Calger's own interpretation of Walt's post-mortem and not Walt's own remarks. In fact, Walt had been around Jews all his life. There were a number of Jews at the Benton School in Kansas City and an even larger contingent at McKinley High School in Chicago. And though he did make insensitive ethnic remarks and occasional slurs, talking about coon voices or referring to an Italian band in Pinocchio as a bunch of garlic eaters, he was tolerant where it counted most and where it wasn't for public display in his personal life. He had sent Diane to a Catholic school and wrote his sister Ruth that though some people presumably Lillian were worried about a com- were worried about a conversion he felt differently i think she is intelligent enough to know what she wants to do he said and i feel that whatever her decision may be is her privilege i have explained to her that catholics are people just like us and basically there is no difference and he said that by giving her this exposure he hoped to create a spirit of tolerance within her there is some dispute whether the same spirit of tolerance prevailed at the studio, but of the Jews who worked there, it was hard to find any who thought Walt was anti was an anti-Semite. Joe Grant, who had been an artist, the head of the model department, and the story man responsible for Dumbo, along with Dick Humor, declared emphatically that Walt was not an anti-Semite some of the most influential people at the studio were jewish grant recalled thinking no doubt of himself production manager harry tittle and kay Kamen, who once quipped that disney's new york office had more jews than the book of leviticus maurice rapp concurred that walt was not anti-semitic "'Anti-Semitic. He was just a very conservative guy. Still, when Tittle, who had changed the spelling of his name from Teitel, shortened from Teitelbaum to hide his his ethnicity, joined the studio, he felt compelled to tell Walt that he was half-Jewish, to which Walt snapped that if he were all-Jewish, he would be better.' Moreover, Walt contributed frequently to Jewish charities, the Hebrew Orphan Asylum of the City of New York, Yeshiva College, the Jewish home for the aged, even after the war to the American League for a Free Palestine. At the very time that Walt was appearing before HUAC, Ned Depinay of RKO had passed along a folio from some friends trying to get Walt to make a Jewish-themed film, which certainly would have been unlikely had they thought of Walt as anti-Semitic. A decade later, in 1955, he would be named Man of the Year by the Beverly Hills Lodge of the B'nai B'rith, the organization that had branded him an arch reactionary during the Song of the South dust up. The plaque read For exemplifying the best tenets of American citizenship and intergroup understanding, and interpreting into action the ideals of B'nai B'rith, benevolence, brotherly love, and harmony, and for bringing laughter and happiness to all people. So why then was Walt so often called anti-semitic? For one thing, the idea was encouraged by disgruntled employees like Art Babbitt and David Hilberman. Hilberman told one Disney biographer that an animator named Zach Schwartz had been fired shortly after the presentation of the union cards. He wasn't a troublemaker. He was a good artist and didn't give anybody a hard time. What he did have was the last name of Schwartz and a big nose. In fact, Walt seldom involved himself in hiring or firing except at the very top tier. Many years later, an animator and director named David Swift, also a Jew, told another biographer that when he informed Walt he was leaving the studio for a job at Columbia, Walt called him into the office, feigned a Yiddish accent, and said, ''Okay, Davy boy, off you go to work with those Jews. It's where you belong with those Jews.'' When Swift returned to the studio after the war, he claimed that Walt, still resentful, told him that the studio hadn't come to any harm while you were away with those Jews. It is certainly possible that Walt made these remarks out of bitterness shortly after the strike, though it would, be, though it would have been uncharacteristic of him even under those circumstances. No one else, not even Art Babbitt, had ever accused Walt of making anti-Semitic slurs or taunts, and Babbitt hated Walt. In any case, for a man who had been insulted, Swift always treated Walt cordially, often effusively, and said he owed everything to him. Walt, in return, told Swift when Swift left the studio a second time that there is still a candle burning in the window if you ever want to come back. Another factor that may have contributed to the, to the idea that Walt Disney was anti-Semitic was that he lived in a nimbus of rich, white, conservative Protestantism that had tinges of anti-Semitism. Walt intimated to Harry Tittle that Walt's own beloved smoke tree was a restricted community, and though he occasionally invited executives there for the weekend, he had had a guest house built outside the ranch grounds, he gently warned Tittle from... From accepting for fear of tittle's being embarrassed, Josie Minkiewix, a school friend of Sharon's and the daughter of screenwriter Herman Mankiewix, did accept and would tell of how she was having lunch with the Disneys at Smoke Tree when a man came to the table and asked them to leave. She did not report Walt's reaction. Yet another theory traces the perception of anti-Semitism not to Walt himself, but to one of his most trusted employees, Ben Sharpstein. The man who had suffered so much of Walt's abuse had heaped abuse of his own. An animator named Art Davis, who had interviewed at the studio, but was not hired, said that Sharpstein, despite having a name that might be mistaken for Jewish, was actually a vicious anti-Semite who did not knowingly hire Jews, and who reviled the ones who had been hired, which was how the studio got its reputation for hostility to Jews. In this version, Walt was guilty of anti-Semitism by association. The most plausible explanation, however, is another case of guilt by association, only a much more serious one. Walt, in joining forces with the MPA and its band of professional reactionaries and red-baiters, also got tarred with their anti-Semitism. Though Maury Ryskin, a Jew, was one of the MPA's most conservative and voluble members, it was widely thought both inside and outside the film industry that the group was toxic when it came to anti-Semitism and that Ryskin merely provided cover. Even the FBI was concerned. One FBI agent reported at the time of the MPA's formation, there is every possibility that persons anti-Semitic will attempt to rally around the MPA, making that organization definitely an anti-Semitic group. Another report quoted John Howard Lawson, a communist screenwriter and later one of the unfriendly HUAC, witnesses as accusing directors Victor Fleming and King Viter, two MPA members, of each being a notorious anti-Semite. Producer David Selznick held the same opinion of the MPA leadership. Outside an MPA meeting in March 1944, Selznick made the charge publicly to MPA President Sam Wood. Wood, obviously trying to disarm him, invited Selznick into the Inside to air his complaints, but Selznick, unmollified, called James K. McGinnis, the MPA founder, the biggest anti-Semite in Hollywood, and charged him with har- with harboring a secret anti-Semitic group called the Hundred Haters at the Lakeside Golf Club, where McGinnis was president. The charges were credible enough that Selznick's father-in-law, MGM head Louis B. Mayer, and Warner's production head Jack Warner, both of whom were at the far right of the political spectrum, began to worry about the anti-Semitic element in the group. Walt Disney certainly was aware of the MPA's purported anti-Semitism, but he chose to ignore it, possibly feeling that the accusation was communist propaganda. The price he paid was that he was all, he would always be lumped, not only with anti-communists, but also with anti-Semites. Regardless of whether he himself was one or not, he had willingly, even enthusiastically, embraced them and cast his fate with them, and having done so, regardless of the awards and charitable contributions, 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 he would never be able to cleanse himself of the taint. Stay tuned for more next Monday.